everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we are actually live together this week in a special in person. Usually we're over Zoom. So today we're in person, and we want to talk about a new article by Tim Keller. And the article is called The Decline and Renewal of the American Church, Part 1, The Decline of the Mainline. And I linked to this article uh, two weeks ago in the Weekly Speak because partially I linked almost everything that Tim Keller writes right. in the Weekly Speak. But secondly, I really think whether it was his biblical primer on justice that he put out last year, um, he's done a couple of really helpful book reviews over the last two years. I really do think that in this period of time after he's done pastoring, he's still speaking, he's battling cancer, he has... Uh, I think Blake Bastin pointed this out to us the other day. He has a God-given focus right now mm-hmm. that's really important. And you can tell in his writing that he's doing things that he thinks are really meaningful, really long-term applicable. And I certainly think this is going to be one of those things. So this is part one of what's scheduled to be a four-part series over the next year. So it's a quarterly essay. And it's going to talk about what the hopes are for the renewal of the church. And this one, part one, is a talk about what's happened to the main lines over the last hundred years. By main lines, we mean things like the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, Lutheran, American Baptist. You know, the the, the main line denominations. That would exclude things like the evangelical denominations. So, Baptist, um, you know, Churches of Christ, Churches of God, Nazarenes. Low church is what those are called versus high church. You can guess who came up with this nomenclature. (laughs) Um, Anyway, what's happened to them over the last hundred years? Their their populations have plummeted. I mean, going from, in some cases, four to five million people in the uh, 80s and 90s to a million people now. I mean, just devastating loss of attendance in these churches. So Keller's going to talk about what happened to these churches. He does. In fact, one of the paragraphs gives you some numbers. The Episcopal Church uh, from the mid-60s until now is less than half. The Presbyterian Church, about a fourth of membership. So it's a significant decline. He doesn't spend much time on the numbers. He just basically observes that and then wants to talk about what happened. But he starts the article out. He makes several good points, but he starts the article out with this sentence. Virtually everyone agrees that something is radically wrong with the church. And uh, my question for you is, in what way do you agree with that statement or disagree with that statement? Well, it is easy to agree with that statement that there's something wrong with the church. And and I think the, the question we have to ask is, but what is wrong with the church? And there's a lot of disagreement on that. Now, one of the things I'm sensitive to, and I know you are too, uh, I think anybody that actually works in a church is sensitive to this, is, there's a whole cottage industry right now of criticism of the church. In fact, people have built huge platforms, Christians, lots of money, right. uh, lots of book deals and podcasts and everything, essentially criticizing the church. Mm-hmm. And yeah, these are Christians. Some of them are part of the ex-evangelical movement. Uh, some of them are people who are still evangelical, but they see it as their place to have a prophetic witness against the church. Uh-huh. And... I, in some ways, really resent that that is an industry because I think part of the issue is if you go to most churches, they are totally different than what you would expect if you only read Twitter or blogs or essays or Christianity Today or whatever, you know, media outlet. Almost all of them have people now where their column is 
basically training their guns on the church week after week after week after week. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the experience of most people going to church. I know it's not the experience of my church. I right. think actually coming out of COVID at our church, people are excited to see each other. They're excited to serve together. They want to hear the word. They want to sing. They want to worship. And uh, I think most churches are probably that way. We're you have certainly seeing that at crossings. There's yeah, a huge enthusiasm in every church. But sure. the spirit of the church right now, I think, in most local churches, is probably pretty good, mm-hmm. um, pretty unified in the sense that we've just been through a season that helped us see what's really valuable right. and the things that we really miss and the things we really need. And so, I always want to caution these criticisms of the church in one way to say I actually think what's wrong with the church exists on kind of a Christianity Inc. level. So whether it be the failure of high-profile, very influential pastors, whether it be the stories that make the news, whether it be the kind of blend in uh, the Christian faith and politics that you get on a national level, I think the apparatus of Christianity more broadly, mm-hmm. there's something wrong there. There's something wrong in, in the machinations of what happens among influencers and social media uh, tycoons and people like that, rather than what you're seeing on a, on a congregational level. And I say that because a lot of the critiques that you see on a week-to-week basis don't seem to land on most of the Christians that you know. And I want to point out one thing that's just a helpful just a helpful thought when you read any article, whether it's this Keller article, whether it's criticism articles, whether it's hagiography kind of articles, mm-hmm. we are so great. And that would be that narratives, you know, broad narratives almost always outlive their accuracy. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a phenomenon that happens somewhere, maybe it's not universal, but it's identifiable. You get a narrative that develops And all of a sudden, that narrative is the straw man that's used to talk about an issue forever. This happens in the media all the time. So you're saying even if it represented common experience and truth at one point, that narrative will be used as the truth long after it's no longer correct. Absolutely. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that happens on all kinds of things. It particularly happens with social issues. Mm -hmm. Social issues, whether it be sexuality or race or gender, those are the top three now that we talk about. But... You know, it could be a bunch of other things like fundamentalism, for example. I think that's something that we need to take a note. There's not that many fundamentalists uh, in big controlling institutions anymore. Mm -hmm. So there may be fundamentalist churches, but, you know, the the old tropes that Christians are not okay with dancing and card playing and all that, 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 that's not even in the top 25 biggest issues in the church today. Instead, as the culture has shifted, that narrative has been used over and over again to propel the shift away from fundamentalism, right. even though fundamentalism is not the dominant force in the church anymore. And we could come up with tons of these, but that's, right. that's just an easy one. So when we start an article like this with, with Keller saying there's trouble in the church, I, I just want to zoom in and say, what kind of trouble are we talking about in the church? Because not all trouble is as accurate as others. And he begins to define the kind of trouble. And in this article of the four, he's talking about the trouble in the mainline churches. And I would say probably most of our listeners are not in mainline churches. Some probably are, but uh, most of our listeners are probably not in mainline churches. And and we have narratives about the mainline churches that probably are not as accurate as they used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's dive in and see what he actually says about them. Well, one of the things that jumped out to me is uh, he talks about He quotes a a guy named Dean Kelly, who wrote a book in 1972, and he was certainly uh, no particular fan. He was making a sociological observation about it. But he made an interesting observation that stuck out to me. He said, 
there are small scale meanings and large scale meanings. And uh, small scale meanings are things like, as he would say, helping others in the neighborhood or volunteering for a good cause, really kind of what we might consider social justice causes. Mm -hmm. And they are meaningful, but they're small scale meanings. He said churches largely enabled people to face suffering and death with some hope and the reason to make sacrifices for your community and for one another, and because there is a greater purpose in life, a making sense of death and suffering and sacrifice. He called that a larger scale meaning. And one of the things that I think Keller points to for the decline in relevance for the mainline churches is, and ironically, as they chased relevance by mm-hmm. pursuing social issues and niceness to neighbors and things like that, which are undoubtedly good things, they left the large-scale meanings and pursued the small-scale meanings and effectively became irrelevant. Mm-hmm. There's a great line in here that basically says that once you get far enough down the line, you realize that secular institutions can provide me the small-scale meanings. Mm-hmm. And while you may not lose uh, the people in one generation, it says one day the children of those liberals mm-hmm. are going to wake up and realize, why would I want to get up early and go to church on Sunday? Right. So trading large-scale meanings for small-scale meanings, well, I thought a really good point that mm-hmm. he made. Yeah, I think so too. And, I, and and you pointed to the central point that I think he makes here is chasing relevance is the quickest way to become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of Relevant Magazine when I hear this point because Re- <laughs> Relevant Magazine is one of those that was a was a relatively early adopter of a lot of social issues and kind of the cultural agenda of the progressive left. And nobody reads it anymore because The Atlantic is way better and right. The New Yorker is way better. And, uh-huh. you know, it's like, why, why would you want a second-rate... Um, magazine called Relevant when you can just get the real thing. And that's kind of the phenomenon that happened with the mainline churches is the the impetus for what happened in these denominations begins about 100 years ago. And this is where Keller is just at his absolute best. I mean, he is able to distill large amounts of cultural analysis down into understandable, readable, quotable prose. Well, he does go back about 100 years, but he doesn't say what happened then. And there's kind of a an instigator, if you will. You mind tell us a little bit about that? Well, what happened about 100 years ago is something called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And you can tell this is before the big marketing revolution in uh, <laughs> the United States of America. That's, it's, that's not, not a great really title. catchy, is it? Yeah. But what happened was you had a big... Uh, difference in the church over whether or not people were going to be fundamentalists or they were going to be modernists. Are you going to get up with the modern science and progress and social engineering and all these things, or are you going to believe this old uh, fundamentalist biblical doctrine? So think of things like evolution. This is Mm -hmm. a big sticking point in the church 100 years ago. And you you have a preacher who is in New York City named Harry Emerson Fosdick. And I always love this story uh, of Fosdick in Eugene Peterson's memoir. I think this is in The Pastor. I think he tells it a couple of places. But uh-huh. when he's a seminary student, he uh, reads something by Fosdick. Because Fosdick's sermons were in the New York Times. I mean, he, he was the most famous preacher in America at the time. And so 
Peterson says, you know, I was always believe I was always raised to believe that Fosdick was the enemy of the Christian faith. So he goes and he ends up calling him and Fosdick answers and he invites him over and he sits down and talks to him and it turns out he's not the devil that he thought he was. And anyway, what Fosdick was doing was he was preaching and he was writing in such a way that was really, really relevant. And it was really keyed in to accepting evolution and accepting social justice and showing how the Christian faith is really relevant to um, the issues that people were facing. Mm -hmm. And what happened was he had this sermon called um, "Shall the Fundamentalist Win," mm-hmm. and this is kind of a this is kind of a uh, watershed moment for his career. And when I was in my PhD seminars, actually, I was writing a paper on Fosdick because I thought the way that he uses the Bible in his preaching is so interesting. He doesn't believe any of it, but mm-hmm. he continues to use it. And so I went to Covenant Seminary where some of his papers are. He's got papers in New York and he's got papers. Uh, in St. Louis. And I was reading some of his sermons, trying to kind of see what was really going on with him. And in the sermon on uh, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, he comes to the point where he says, who are you to deny entrance into the community of faith with someone who disagrees with you? And the reason he says that is because for him, experience is just as strong a testimony as something like Scripture. That sounds very modern. It is. And as I say, he's kind of ahead of his time. In fact, I think he, he would be a really he'd be a real hit in some churches today because he starting from a fairly good intention, wanted to make what the church was doing resonate with what people were already thinking and talking about. But what he did was when the two sides came together and one of them had to give, it was always the Bible that had to give. So we're gonna think like secular people. We're going to adopt secular progressive causes. We are going to preach sermons that um, eschew fundamentalism and embrace modernism, what Uh people are thinking. So what happens is you have a split, and you have people going with Fosdick over things like evolution or social change or progressive causes, and then you have the fundamentalists who end up basically becoming evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And that's people like Jay Gresham Machen and others who are arguing, well, what happens when you do that is you delete enough parts out of the historic Christian faith that you actually end up with another religion altogether. Right. So Fosdick is a forerunner of what we're seeing now on a new set of progressive issues. Are you going to get with the people that are progressive or are you going to stick with the people who are stuck in the past? Mm -hmm. Well, Riverside Church used to be the biggest, most expensive church in the country. I mean, it was the marvel. Uh, it's in it's in the D.C. area. It is, it is a marvel of the early 20th century Christian influence in the United States. Today, mm-hmm. it is empty. I mean, there are maybe hundreds of people that go there, whereas when Fosdick was there, there were tens of thousands. And it's still the seat of the government church in some ways. They have government programs there. They have you know receptions and things there, but mm-hmm. nobody goes there anymore. Mm-hmm. It's become the most irrelevant church in America. And part of it is, I wonder if you're listening, if you've ever even heard of Riverside Church. And if you haven't, that proves the point. A right. hundred years ago, there was nobody in the country that hadn't heard of that church. And now nobody goes there anymore. That's the pursuit of relevance. Right. Now, some, some of our listeners are saying, yeah, that might be an individual case, but what is it about embracing something like Fosdick did that leads to 
irrelevance. Yeah, and that's where I think Keller's really good. Well, but that's you're right. And you raised a good point when we were talking earlier that that kind of drift isn't a decision. Fostick didn't get up one day and say, I'd like to have an empty church in 100 years. And But how does that drift occur? What is the core principle, that the course change that you make at the beginning that ends up to take you there? Because you don't begin with that end in mind, mm-hmm. so to speak. What? Right. How would you identify and how would Keller identify the core little tweaks that got there? Keller makes two really good points uh, that lead to what I think is his conclusion about the main lines. And those two points are uh, what, what happened in the fundamentalist modernist controversy and what's happening now is you have churches who are making choices between two different ways of thinking and two different agendas. Mm -hmm. So you can embrace a secular way of thinking, which then was something like, we have to have an explanation from science. Right. Okay. We live in a modern world. We need to be able to explain what happens in the modern world through science. And that leads you to do things like rationalize and get rid of the virgin birth, the resurrection, the inerrancy of scripture, because those things don't have scientific explanations. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, you, you have things like political causes that you begin to embrace, like social justice, which now has a new meaning. Now we, we use social justice differently than they did then, but that the greatest problem that somebody has is their living conditions. Right. If we can just solve people's living conditions, then we can accomplish the mission. And so what Keller points out is the more you do that, Little decisions at first, bigger decisions later, the more you drift away from a biblical way of thinking and a Christian set of, uh, of, of causes and agendas in the mission. Now we have different things, right? We're not really struggling with um, you know, the fundamentalist, modernist controversy anymore. Right. I would say then the biggest barrier to belief was something like, are you going to believe science or are you going to believe the Bible? That's not where we are anymore. Um, we're not struggling with that. We're not struggling with the new atheism anymore, which right. was a crisis of belief and evidence and you know the understanding of the way the universe works. In my opinion now, the biggest barrier to belief in Christianity is, is moral. It's right. ethical. It's not, can I or can I not believe that somebody uh, could be God in the flesh? Or can I or can I not believe that the Bible is inspired? No, the, the controversy now is, can I or can I not believe in a God who thinks and who commands people to be married, one man to one woman for life, and no sex outside of that? There are people that say, I will not believe in a God who thinks that. Right. I just won't, because I know that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Or you know, people that say, well, I, I won't believe in a God who says that if you feel like a different gender than your biological sex, that you shouldn't be able to express yourself in that way. If there's a God who says that, I don't believe in him because he's a moral monster. That's what you're hearing today. Right. Uh, And so the actual apologetic uh, issue that we're talking about is one of ethics. Can you hold a biblical ethic or can you not? And so the fundamentalists will be people that say, Actually, we believe what the Bible teaches, and it may not be popular, but this, this is, these are God's words. And the equivalent of the modernists would be something like, we know better. We've right. experienced better. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the people that reject the Bible outright. It's the people that say, the trajectory of the Bible would lead us to believe this. Or, well, we know what the Bible says, but actually our experience has shown us that maybe God thinks differently about this. Maybe love would have us do something different than what this outdated text would have us say. Those are the kinds of choices we're making today, but it's very similar to the choices they were making then. Yes, I think you're right. You just outlined two key points that 
Keller makes as his critique with what is wrong with the church. One is giving up core Christian doctrines and substituting good things, but they're not ultimate things. Right. And secondly would be ethics or morals and giving up the ethical or moral portion of the Bible. And this is really interesting to me because here's a great example of this is uh, having just taught on racial unity. Here's a perfect example. So Martin Luther King uses the moral basis of the truth of God's word to justify an end to slavery and racism and discrimination. And we would agree with that. However, today, uh, post-Martin Luther King, that is not the argument that Mm -hmm. is being made. The argument that is being made now wants to share the idea of ending racism, but for completely different reason because it's no longer tethered to a moral standard like Mm -hmm. it was for Martin Luther King. Now it's based on the experience of the people who have undergone this or think they've undergone it or perceive that they've undergone it. And so the interesting thing is, is that when you give up the moral foundation of the Bible uh, that MLK had and that we have, you then become untethered. And so you you want to hang on to that moral absolute, but you don't have any grounding to do it. Mm-hmm. But here's an interesting question and a point that I think you made is, why is the are Christians on the defensive about that? What is the method that uh, secularists who say we should end racism and the kind of the victim mentality rather than a moral foundation, how is it that they would critique Christians then? Well, th- this, I think, is the question right now about how the dynamics are working between competing groups, in, especially in our country, but especially in Europe and in the West, is how do you have a group of people like traditional biblical Christians who have believed roughly the same thing for 2,000 years mm-hmm. with broad contours, and then you have people who have arrived at their beliefs in about the last 10 years, and they're progressing by the moment who are so certain about what they believe that they will castigate anybody who disagrees with them. How do you have that happen? This is really an interesting... moral certainty for someone who just recently came by their moral This is a really interesting question. Right. I, I think one of the reasons is what's happened in the United States is you have things like if you, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that... Man was endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. I heard somebody say uh, the other day, I don't remember who it was, but but I think this point is true, that we've gone from these are self-evident because they were endowed by the creator to just these are self-evident. Mm-hmm. Self-evident by what? That's the big question. And certainly aren't self-evident in every culture. Right. It's, a, it's an untethered morality. Yes. So if you if you basically separate what you think is self-evident from the heritage that we have in the West, which is in a Christian moral framework, a Judeo-Christian way of understanding the world, what you do is you take concepts that arose out of Christian beliefs so that there's a God, there's human dignity, there's a, there's a Savior, there is a purpose in the world, there's a purpose in your life. If you delete all of those things, but you keep things like love and justice and mercy and forgiveness, then you start to use those terms in ways that are actually detached from how those terms got their meaning. And there's a great quote from Rene Girard, who 
is just a fascinating philosopher for our time period. His big thing is scapegoats. So he talks about the social phenomenon of scapegoating, which is so perfect for what's happening. I mean, if you look Mm -hmm. at protests, if you look at politics, if you look at media, if you look at Me Too, we have an innate desire to punish a victim, to assuage the feeling of guilt in the masses. I mean, there are some things that he's not right on, but on this one, it's looking pretty significant for our time period. But in his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, um, he he talks about victimhood separated from the Christian understanding of victimhood. And so he says this. He says, these people will come about, and what they'll do is, in trying to usurp the place of Christ, the powers, so this is like Ephesians 6 language, principalities yeah. and powers, imitate him in a way that a mimetic rival might imitate the model in order to defeat him. They denounce the Christian concern for victims as hypocritical and a pale imitation of the authentic crusade against oppression and persecution for which they themselves carry the banner. Now, this should sound very familiar mm-hmm. because if you, if I were to say something like, I believe in justice for the oppressed, would your first inclination be to say, you must be an evangelical Christian? Or would your first inclination say, you must be a progressive? Okay, we both are using the same language in uh-huh. some ways, but we're meaning very different things. And part of that is because one of them has a standard. How do we arrive at what a victim is? How do we arrive at what justice is? Right. God gets to say what that is. Versus another group who says, no, we know victimhood when we see it, and we know oppression when we see it, and we'll assign those things at any given moment, and then everybody will take their places on either side. That's kind of what happened. It's a, it's a language shift that's accompanied a moral shift that's accompanied social shifts away from Christianity and towards a new kind of, it's hard to say what the lineage is, but a, a new kind of social religion. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that just to summarize that, is this right? Basically, what I see happening a lot in number of quarters is to take Christian words that are founded upon deep-seated ideas and foundation, hollow them out, fill them with what you want, like the word justice. For mm-hmm. Justice is very specific meaning in the Bible. Right. You can actually say what is just and what is not based on what God has said is just and what is not. But if I take that word, hollow it out, fill in what I want to be justice, I can throw that back at you and say you're a hypocrite. Right. And here's the really insidious part. Because it has biblical language attached to it, what you can always do is go find some Christians, quote-unquote Christians, and have them say, well, I'm a Christian, and I don't believe what those Christians believe. Yes. That's a very manipulative, and I'm not saying the people doing it are manipulative. I'm saying the people that are hiring them are manipulative. It's a very manipulative way to coerce people into believing what you believe, or at least shaming them out of what they believe. Right. Because every Christian, I think, listening to this has felt the pressure of somebody somewhere in a book, in an interview, in a media appearance, in an article in you know the New York Times, let's say, who basically says, well, I'm a Christian. And I don't believe any of those things that those Christians believe. And then you realize you're one of those Christians. Yeah. And now you have people and you say, well, maybe I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I don't believe what I should believe. That can be very disorienting. Divide and conquer. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's, and you alluded to it when you talked about the cottage industry of 
criticizing Christians. There are a lot of Christians. I'm skeptical of anybody who's making a lot of money or gaining a lot of influence who is a Christian criticizing other Christians. I'm fine with Christians speaking to one another and trying to uh, correct one another. That's, that's a very godly thing to do. But to write for the New York Times or to sell millions of books doing it makes me, uh, this is my opinion, I'm very skeptical of the motives there. And I'm right. saying, are you helping the kingdom or are you hurting the kingdom? Right. Are we really trying to correct the church here or are we on a personal quest for power and influence? Exactly. Now, I'm not saying that everything that's big is bad. Yeah. There, are, there are things that have been wildly successful that are really good. But you always have to be a little bit skeptical and say, who's paying the bills here? Mm-hmm. Who Who's the one that's really leveraging the platform here? And a lot of times that requires us to be a little bit suspicious and really read something carefully, not just accept on face value what this, what this is saying, especially when we go back to the topic of language. So Keller lays this out, and we've, we've jumped off a little bit from where he goes, but he's laid out the trajectory of how this happens. When you adopt a uh, secular way of thinking, when you adopt uh, political causes, and this can be done on the left or on the right, um, you get to a place where there are no shared values anymore. There are no assumed standards anymore. And so what Keller concludes for the, for the uh, mainline, and this is the last paragraph in the essay, the fundamental assumptions of the mainline Christians remain intact. It over-adapted to Western secular culture 100 years ago, and it is still doing so today. And as such, it cannot offer to our societies an alternative or counterpoint, nor can it be the path to renewal for the American church. I think the, the takeaway there from, from where Keller concludes is if you've bought the secular way of thinking and if you've bought a secular uh, agenda of political causes, left or right, you have nothing to offer the world. Right. And that's why these churches have shrunk. You know, the interesting thing to me there at the beginning of that paragraph Keller says, the overall project of mainline Protestantism has failed. And as you look back the hundred years, you look at the statistics, you trace what happened, you'd have to say that just quite obviously, uh, this isn't even debatable, that those mainline denominations have failed in their endeavor. But he mentions progressive Christianity, which is the label for continued liberalization of Christianity. The interesting thing to me is liberal Christianity, or what's called progressive Christianity, is basically doubling down mm-hmm. on the tenets of mainline Protestantism. Right. And it's, uh, it seems to me that the outcome of that is already predetermined. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me like you're just crazy to double your bet on something that has failed. And I, I right. can't wait for Keller to, to his next article to move on and leverage that idea. Mm-hmm. But before we leave this article, what are some, I mean, I think some of the points you've made, some of the points Keller makes are, are really interesting, but what are some takeaways for us? If you had to boil this down and say, okay, having read this, here are some things that I really took away from it, what would they be? Right. Well, I think some people listening are probably thinking, why Why are you guys so bent on things that are popular or things that are in the media or things that are in the mainline? Why are you so bent on saying that they are always wrong? <laughs> and that's not really the message of what I'm saying. I think 
in a, in a secular culture, you shouldn't be surprised that there are a lot of disagreements with Christianity. That I am saying that. If I, not, you should be concerned. And Keller's on record for saying that. If your right. God never disagrees with you, you probably better check which God you believe exactly. in. Exactly. It just so happens that the people who fundamentally do not believe God's law, they do not believe in God, they do not believe what God says, have all of a sudden arrived at what God happens to say. Reading the Bible that way is problematic. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying that it's always wrong. I'm saying are you able to tell when it is wrong? And that's really my first point is don't be bullied into believing what everybody else believes if you don't see it in Scripture. So like I said, the, the big pressure right now is moral. It's not intellectual. It's, it's not epistemological. It's moral. Don't be bullied by people who call you a bigot or you know morally reprehensible because you believe things that you clearly see the Bible teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean... This is one of those things we have been so privileged in America to basically be able to be in the mainstream of our culture and believe what the Bible says for a long time. And may that continue. That would be great. Uh But my guess is it is not going to continue. In fact, it's going to be very difficult to believe what the Bible says and be in the mainstream of culture. It's just going to get harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Now, God can do whatever. I would love it if that was not the case. Right. But I think it's going to get more difficult. And so the point there is don't be bullied, but know what you believe. And here's where I think we really need to double down as Christians. Know why you believe what you believe. If you can't explain something like, why does God tell us that sex outside of marriage is wrong? Why does God tell us something like hating somebody else in your heart is sinful? Why does God tell us that looking at pornography is wrong? If you know that those things are wrong, but you can't explain why, that's a big part of the problem. People react against that by ditching the whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, we really need to read our Bibles in such a way that we know why God says those things, not just that he says them. So that that would be my first point. Mm -hmm. The second, don't be seduced. By worldly power. The, yeah. the, a verse that has gotten so much more important to me is where he says, he says this is rubbable in Zechariah. It's not going to happen by might. It's not going to happen by power. It's going to happen by my spirit. Yeah. That is something that Christians need to remember is that God works in ways that are adjacent to the ways of the world. Oftentimes, God uses... Think about what he says in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you guys were rich and powerful. Right. Not many of you guys had jobs at X, Y, and Z company. Not many of you guys had the personal Mm -hmm. power and influence to be able to pull this off. Instead, God uses what is weak to shame the strong. God uses what is foolish to shame the wise. He he even uses things that are not even in existence to bring to nothing the things that are. That's the power of God. Don't be seduced. Don't take an opportunity to gain worldly power at the expense of what you believe. That is never a good Mm trade-off. Another way of saying that, um, I was listening to a Piper sermon a few weeks ago, it's never the right thing to do the wrong thing. Right. That's a great way to put it. No compromise in terms of your personal beliefs and your holiness and what God has called you to is ever the ends justifies the means. That's just not the way it works. Right. The last thing I would add is don't forget the mission. Hmm. Do not forget the mission. This is maybe the biggest part of what's going on with um, on the political spectrum on the left and the right is people have been confused into thinking that a political agenda is the church's agenda. And that just isn't true. We actually have our own agenda. 
And uh, we have forgotten that there's more to the agenda than getting a candidate in the White House or getting a certain legislation through or right. making sure that what's legal in our country lines up with what we believe. All of those things can be important. And mm-hmm. I'm not downplaying any of those things. But I am saying that they're secondarily important. Right. They are only important insofar as they are um, down the list of our broader agenda. They are items, they may be goals, they may be tactics, right. but they are not our mission, and they are not the agenda. It's easy to forget the mission. Do not forget the mission is to fulfill the Great Commission, to love God, to love our neighbors, to grow in the likeness of Christ, to walk by the Spirit. We have a full agenda without getting to any of these progressive or conservative causes. And some of them overlap, but many of them don't. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.